0: Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, sitting in for Bill Nygett. Georgia has clearly played a huge role in the 2020 elections, both by going blue for President-elect Joe Biden in the general, and then by flipping in the Senate in favor of Democrats with last week's runoff elections. In fact, some Georgians are still getting late arriving campaign mail, flyers encouraging them to vote in an election that took place a week ago. And given the events of the last week, with both Georgia's runoffs and a siege on the US Capitol by Trump supporters, it seems that another item of note was shoved out of the headline limelight. That is the call President Donald Trump made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, urging him to find the votes needed to flip the state back to red. But Washington hasn't forgotten. The House article of impeachment includes a specific reference to Trump's phone conversation with Raffensburger. and we'll talk more about that, and now that the election is over, more about George's role in the news coming out of Washington, D.C., uh, and I have a great panel with me here to discuss. Joining me, I have Chuck Williams, a reporter for WRBL News 3 in Columbus. Welcome back to Rewind, Chuck.
1: Good to be here. It's been a while, and I really
2: look forward to it.
0: Me too. We have Adam Van Brimmer, the editorial page editor from the Savannah Morning News. Hey, Adam.
2: Hey, good morning, Tamar. Thanks for having me.
0: And we have Dr. Kurt Young, a political science professor from Clark Atlanta University, joining us. I'm so looking forward to talking to you, Professor Young. Uh, This is not your first time doing the show, but I haven't had a chance to talk to you yet, so welcome.
3: Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely, so I'd like to start the show today on Capitol Hill where House Democrats are ramping up the pressure on President Trump to leave office following last week's storming of the Capitol and today we have the House Rules Committee which is controlled by Speaker Pelosi preparing legislation, uh, or sorry, preparing a resolution for floor debate today that would direct Vice President Pence and the Capitol to use the 25th Amendment to oust uh, President Trump from office. Um, And and it's been reported in the national press over the last couple days that there's been a rift between the president and uh, Vice President Pence over the last week, specifically the vice president's refusal to to, uh, overturn the the electoral college results. Um, Democrats would, of course, prefer Vice President Pence to act via the 25th Amendment, but that looks highly unlikely. And I guess I would like to start off today's discussion by, by like going over the political mechanics of all of this. So, so let's start with you, Chuck. Um, you know, Democrats are rushing on this. There's only eight days left in the president's term. The, the committees that, that were to drop this legislation haven't even formally met yet. Uh, it's clear that, that Vice President Pence does not want to invoke the 25th Amendment. So how do you think this is helpful to Democrats right now?
1: I'm not sure that it is, and it's interesting. i talked to uh, Congressman Drew Ferguson, who's out of the very conservative Georgia third, um, yesterday, and we were the first ones to get a hold of him in the wake of what happened Wednesday, and he was in the Capitol. And, you know, in talking to him about this, he didn't really talk much about the impeachment side of it. I kind of got the feeling from talking to Congressman Ferguson that, you know, they're trying to get to the next step, get to the inauguration and see what it looks like. So, you know, from to answer the question, I'm I'm not sure it is helpful, but I think there needs, I think you're seeing the Democrats say there needs to be an accountability for what happened. And if you listened, I was in Dalton last Monday night when President Trump held his rally, and the the speech was very similar to what you heard Wednesday before everything started. But the most interesting part of it was Donald Trump Jr., and he became very—he was very strong in his words, and he didn't mention when he was talking about John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock, he called them point-blank commie bastards. And so the rhetoric was so high, and I think that's what you're seeing some of right now. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And Kurt, this whole process of invoking the 25th Amendment, if this were to ever occur, it's a pretty untested process constitutionally. Um, so even if the cabinet were to meet, we, we sort of it's, it's kind of undefined the sort of role that especially Congress would play if, if the cabinet deflects on this. There is a role for Congress, but won't this just end up in the courts anyway?
3: It, it may end up in the courts. That's a very good point. However, in between the, 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 the initiation of the process, and the actual uh, um, um, court action litigation. There are all types of steps in between that we just don't know and or, or can't anticipate what would, what would uh, come out of them. For example, there is a part of the process where, and my memory serves, where there, you know, the president has an opportunity to rebut or appeal the decision of the cabinet. And then after that, that triggers yet another delay in the process so, or, or maybe not a delay, but certainly extends the process uh, before one even gets to the question of litigation. So, the same kind of discussion about the 25th Amendment, as it pertains to the amount of time that's actually left in the uh, term, uh, is very similar to the conversation regarding the, the impeachment process. Um, and and I, I believe, I believe that uh, um, Vice President Pence is making a taking making a political calculus the, the extent to which. That uncertainty is worth any kind of currency left in his political career going forward. Um, whether or not it's worthwhile to surrender that currency in exchange for a process that uh, may not even bring about the end that uh, one is uh, attempting to achieve in the short term.
0: Adam, there's been such turnover in the the cabinet over the last week since the, the Capitol uh riot we've seen. Uh, Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao stepped down, Education Sec- Secretary Betsy DeVos. Uh, one member of the cabinet who has not stepped down and does not look likely to is Georgia's Sonny Perdue, the agriculture chief. And when we caught up with him last week, he suggested uh, he, he doesn't have an appetite to leave, and, and he kind of dodged a little bit on the 25th Amendment question. But at at the moment, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of appetite, even from other members of the cabinet, to engage in this. Right, Adam?
2: That's right, and we shouldn't be surprised, right? I mean, this cabinet has stood by and watched this president do so many unethical things and everything else over the last four years. But now, when he finally crosses the line—at least what they can, what most people would consider a, a line of no return—they all bow out instead of taking responsibility and doing what what they are ostensibly there for. Sure, they are pres- presidential appointees, but they are they are there in part to. To be advisors, and when he refuses to take advice, then to hold him accountable. And we're not seeing that out of the cabinet. The cabinet, of course, is, is littered with loyalists right now. Uh, the whole idea of the Twenty Fifth Amendment—it it, it does all lie on Pence, and Pence is in an unenvi- unenviable position because, let's face facts here, the Republican Party faces uh, an ex- ex- existential crisis here over the next year, the next two years, uh, leading into 2022 and then eventually 2024, what are they going to be and where do they go? And uh, nobody seems willing to go ahead and say what they probably should have said on November the 4th, which is there's no way with, with President Trump that we can continue to be competitive in statewide or nationwide races, so we need to find a different direction. They haven't done that. And, uh, and it just continues to spin, and I, I mean, I'm I, I worry for the future of the Republican Party. I have for four years, but it's it's worse now than ever. And in, unless they were to actually step up and, and make a stand and define where they are, whether it's through the Twenty Fifth Amendment or um, or embracing an impeachment proceedings, I don't know where they go from here.
0: And I think we're going to see that existential crisis you mentioned, Adam, play out on the House floor uh, tomorrow. Today, we'll we'll see the vote most likely on this this resolution, which is not legally binding. It's not going to the Senate about giving Pence uh, 24 hours to respond on this 25th Amendment issue, and then. Tomorrow, House Democrats have signaled that's when they'll move forward on this impeachment resolution. It's a single article. It's pretty simple, only four pages long, talking about uh, an incitement of insurrection for the president's comments to supporters that if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And uh, the the document also cites President Trump's phone call with Brad Raffensperger ahead of the runoffs in which he urged him to find 12,000 votes to reverse his election defeat. Um, And and let's talk a little bit more about that, Chuck, and kind of the decisions that especially Georgia's House Republicans are going to be facing. We have eight House Republicans. We saw last week six of them ended up voting with the president even after the Capitol riots to uh, reverse the, uh, the electoral college results. What are you expecting to, to see from these guys, especially because House Republican leaders have signaled they're not whipping this vote, which means they're not urging them to vote one way or another. They're giving members the freedom to vote their conscience.
1: And it's going to be interesting to see what that conscience is. I mean, because one of the things you said, there were two that did not vote to certify the electors. Those two Republicans were Drew Ferguson and Austin Scott from Georgia's eight. Ferguson had indicated he was going to vote against certification. Prior to it, he was in the 140 or so Republicans, but he began to reconsider. He told me prior to the insurrection, and he listened to the debate. What he told me yesterday, talked to a number of people, and he made the decision not that constitutionally he was required to certify the thing, the vote. And it came down to the Constitution, and I think you're going to see a lot of them really looking at the Constitution. I mean, based on my conversation with Congressman Ferguson yesterday, there's no question that's what he's
2: doing right now.
0: Adam, one of the, the six, six Georgia Republicans to vote uh, to overturn the Electoral College results was, was Buddy Carter from Savannah. And talk to me about your, your conversations with him and, and what he was thinking about as he made that decision last week.
2: Sure. Well, I'll, first of all, be very transparent here, Buddy Carter refuses to correspond with us. Um, we, uh, I, I wrote something very critical of him a couple of weeks ago, and their response has been a complete media blackout, at least in terms of Savannah Morning News and a couple other media outlets in town. So I haven't talked to him. His only communication, for the most part, has been through Twitter and social media feeds. But the the, the bottom line for for uh, Representative Carter, and I'm glad that, that Chuck mentioned the word the Constitution, is that uh, Buddy, throughout this process, going back to the initial challenges, has, has cited that he is standing behind the president because he is standing behind the constitution now uh, how he interprets the constitution he's not exactly answering we've asked him that question we're not getting an answer i'm sure he probably has some kind of legalese that supports his that supports his argument but when you look at representative carter i don't think you're going to with all due respect chuck i don't think you're going to see any kind of retrenchment on his on his part i think jody Heiss, who uh, the morning of the rally so it's before the riot so let's be real honest about that uh, it says this is our 1776 moment this whole this whole mindset that if you lose an election now then you should uh, take to the streets and, and it's it, you either you either riot or you change the rules which we're seeing you know in, in our state house quite possibly changing the rules around the election it's it's so disturbing I can't even really – I've struggled with it for a week now, and I will continue to struggle with it as to what is going on in this country in terms of a party that is losing favor, a party that really doesn't have a clear vision of where they want to go. So they're just being as stubborn and grasping at straws, and I don't really think of of those six. You might see a couple uh, kind of back away or, or see the light, but I think for the most part you're going to see them double down and double down some more because they are just so afraid of losing the support of the base. And, you know, they're congressmen, so they've got, they basically are running for office constantly. Uh, we just had an election, so, so Buddy Carter and the other 434 aren't up again until next year, but the primary is, is May of next year. It's not that far away. So I think that because of the considerations of the base, they are going to, to stay the course.
0: And Kurt, I want to get you back in here, but but Adam, I do want to ask a follow up question to you. What is your sense in Savannah, at least among your readers? Do they back Buddy Carter and his vote last week? What's the sense you're getting locally?
2: I think, like a lot of places, it's very divided. I think there are a lot of people who have voted for Buddy over the years who are disappointed in him. Um, You know, speaking as one of his constituents, I can say that I have voted for Buddy Carter multiple times, and I will never do so again i'm so disappointed in the way he has acted uh but in terms of the city at large there's a lot of people that the pro-business community they look at the job that buddy has done uh the the support that the port has gotten he gets a lot of credit for that whether it's founded or unfounded but it's it's really divided down here there's going to be a protest here tomorrow at his office and it'll be really interesting to see how many people show up for that and not only how many people show up for that, but who those people are. Are we basically seeing the usual, um, uh, the more liberal uh, activists here in town that are getting out and protesting, or are we going to start to see uh, some of the some of the people that are more uh, Republican or more pro-buddy? And we'll, 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 we'll wait and see.
0: Kurt, let's talk about some of the calculations that go into this. I mean, there's only eight days left in Donald Trump's presidency. Obviously, this was a really... Um, giant moment that I think shook everyone to their core about kind of where American democracy is headed. At the same time, you have Republican leadership saying, if you pursue impeachment again, it's going to divide Americans at a time when Americans can't afford to be divided, when we should be unifying.
3: Yeah, the hypocrisy is blinding. Um, But we shouldn't be—we shouldn't be surprised. We saw this coming. Um, you know, it's an old saying that, that we sometimes uh, feel just uncomfortable with, but this whole notion of chickens coming home to roots. Uh, these politics that we've seen unfolding uh, is actually the caboose in a long chain of Republican politics, conservative politics, uh, particularly in the South. And in many ways, the, the kind of decisions that the Georgia delegation is going to have to make is, is, is playing out across the country uh, in Republican politics. Uh, at the end of the day, regardless of what happens to Donald Trump in the next eight days or so, or beyond, I'll come back to that shortly. The fact of the matter is that there's an energized base that's the product of Donald Trump's ability to tap into and mobilize. That base isn't going away, as we're hearing right now. In fact, despite what happened, in spite of what happened in, in, uh, at, the, in at the Capitol, and you're talking about continued mobilization and, and protests and marches across the country uh, focused on capital. Uh, uh, um, buildings throughout the, throughout the states, right? And so what that's telling us is that the same factor that helped to mobilize the, uh, this particular part of the Republican base um, is not going away. And because they're not going away, uh, congressmen and congresswomen who are beholden to that vote or who are afraid, simply afraid of being attacked in a certain kind of way, uh, um, um, they have a political calculus to make. And so based on that reality, uh, I'm only left to assume that they're going to uh, continue to hold, hold the line. Now, let me be, be careful. Let me be careful. We have seen over the last few days, and certainly since Wednesday, uh, uh, decisions by um, a number of Republicans to break racks, uh, to stand on the principle. And as someone said a moment ago, I, I think both, both my, my colleagues on the show uh, made reference to the Constitution. That is now becoming an important part of the, of the discourse, um, perhaps somewhat late. But uh, uh, better late than never, because this emphasis on the Constitution really leaves no other uh, option. Uh, everything else uh, panders to the political uh, dynamics and the uh, and the winds that are blowing in the in the party right now.
2: Yeah, the the rationalizations, the rationalizations, and the and the false equivalencies and the justifications that are being mentioned, and and not just mentioned by by people. You would sit there and say, okay, well that that person's kind of a kind of out there. They're they're far right. I'm hearing this from family, from friends. It it is just – it is incredible how divided this country has become and how people have bought into uh, the narrative, the narrative that that the Democrats mean – automatically mean socialism. And the fear of that, and then they look at, okay, well, the Democrats led all these riots over the summer, which we know is not true. Uh, It was – it was – bipartisan I guess it's not the right word but it was it was a it was more fewer amongst the american people than it was fewer amongst the democrats and it's just it as you can tell I'm struggling for the words and it's just i i really wonder no matter what happens here if 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 unity is possible and if it is possible he uh, better have some kind of you better have a spell to be able to to wind it to get everybody to you buy into it because, quite frankly, the spell that has been the brainwashing that has happened here over the last four or six years it is is going to be really hard to to break with a lot of people.
1: Chuck, Kurt was, Kurt was just talking about the base, and the base was clearly present in Dalton last Monday night. And I keep going back to that, but I saw him in Macon two years ago, just prior to the Kemp election of his governor. And so I had seen two of the Trump rallies. The one last Monday night in Dalton was different from the one in Macon two years ago in 2018. And the difference was there were fewer people, but there were still thousands. But they were hardcore. Not Mm. a single one that I talked to believed that Joe Biden won the election. They all believed it was rigged. They all believed it was stolen. So just, in, I mean, all I would say is comparing the two rallies that I've seen of President Trump's, there was something different in Dalton Monday night. I don't know what that is, but it was clearly, I mean, and I'm not going to state my opinions like Adam can an editorial page editor, but I can say what I saw, and I know what I saw Monday night in Dalton.
0: I think it's worth taking a step back and kind of talking about why we might be seeing a lot of Republicans who might not want to stand up to the president at this moment, the way our our kind of system was designed. And you think about how gerrymandered our congressional districts are, and you're you're packing as many Democrats as possible into some districts, and as many Republicans as possible into other districts, which means that if you're an incumbent lawmaker, you're more scared of a primary challenge than you are the general, because you, you come from a district that might be, you know, plus 10 Republican or plus 10 Democrat. And so, I think people are, are so terrified that if they were to, to cross the president or any leader of their party, that they uh, might not be considered loyal enough. And those members of the, of the president's base, just like who were at that rally in Dalton on, on Monday, uh, you know, might be willing to cross you in a primary two years later, which is kind of the threat we're seeing now with with Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger. Uh, but Kurt, one interesting thing we, we've seen in terms of challenging that, that system um, You know, you have all of these major companies that that donate thousands of dollars to uh, members of Congress and candidates, um, often bipartisan donations, but a lot of them mentioning they're either going to cut off donations to people who voted to overturn the election results or they're cutting off all political donations and yesterday we saw two local companies, Coca-Cola and UPS, mention they're suspending political giving at the moment. Kurt, how do you think that that might be able to change the, the political conversation, if at all? That's not something we've ever seen before.
3: Great question. But if you build me just one moment, I want to go back to something Chuck was saying a moment ago. Uh, that's a great observation. If, if I can just speak to it, that's a great observation. And I would suspect that if candidate Trump did what he threatened to do in 2016, we might have seen some of the same thing occur back then, which is to dele- delegitimize uh, the victory, of course, theoretically or hypothetically, of, uh, of candidate uh, Clinton, Hillary Clinton uh he threatened to 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 uh antagonize the base in that way then we may have seen this unfold a bit earlier um but uh, and then that helps to speak to the additional force which has to do with just maybe the outright threat of harm to them to themselves all right We heard um all of the uh, news discussions around this chant uh uh or whatever uh, awful uh version um we we heard there and this is a real this is a real real. Uh, experience that's occurring right now, the threat of life, uh, loss of life. Regarding the discussion around the corporations, you know, whether a corporation or company is uh, has Republican leanings or Democratic leanings or just simply wants to uh, um, um, influence the political process in one way or the other, the one thing that they all share in common is the need for some level of, uh, of stability within the society. Uh, this is something that they all have an interest in because uh, the kind of instability that we are, we are on the fringes of right now, and I hope we're taking the time to understand this, uh, what can come out of this, uh, is certainly not good for the Constitution. It's not good for um, the, 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 those who proclaim the, the, the position of law enforcement or, or, or uh, law and order, rather. Um, but the one reality is that it's not good for business. And I believe that what's happening through the corporate ranks in the country is that uh, uh the the short term and long term effects of what is at hand here um pretends to be very very negative for um uh, that which they need to prosper in their work, but at the same time we we should recognize when corporations are able to uh, demonstrate uh, aspects of social responsibility uh we should we should take that as it is and say that um that, that they are practicing good citizenship uh, as corporations, but we need not. Um, remove their interest to maintain some stability in the society. And this is an unstable moment in American history.
1: Chuck? I want to play off what Kurt just said. and he, His words were, this is not good for business. But business, as everybody on this panel knows, is the lifeblood through their contributions to these politicians that fund the system. In Columbus, we have two major corpor- Georgia corporations. We have Aflac and we have Synovus both large corporations. And I've been fortunate to be a business writer in my previous life. And looking at this, the question is not how businesses will react. It's what are they going to do when it comes to don't to funding campaigns of candidates who may Republican candidates who may have been involved in this and dealt with some of these constitutional questions that may be harmful to their business interests. That's what I'm interested in watching after all this plays out, because businesses have a key role to play in this. I think we're all going to understand what that role is moving forward into the Biden administration and into the 2022 election cycle. But, I mean, I think, Kurt, is spot on about this, absolutely spot on.
0: And I'm going to give Adam the last word before our break, but, you know, Buddy Carter has been, you know, he definitely has a reputation for being an exceptionally business-friendly kind of guy. And in Savannah, you have a huge corporation that's Gulfstream. You have the the port and all the interests that intersect with that. Uh, Do you think his vote has the potential to bite him later?
2: that's something i've been thinking hard about the last 24 or 48 hours and obviously the way the congressional districts are drawn and they will be redrawn and probably drawn in such redrawn in such a way to strengthen the republican hold on this district when the state legislature does it in the fall is it's probably if somebody's going to challenge him it's probably going to come from within his his own party so the question is is do those business interests those business interests that are maybe disappointed or uh disenfranchised with him do they then rally behind another candidate's challenge you know buddy faced a primary challenge last year from uh, a local businessman who was a veteran and uh he really didn't have hardly any support so he couldn't really mount a hard challenge and and he kind of ran as, as trying to run farther to the right than buddy is so that uh, you know the circumstances were a little different then but you guys are absolutely right. It's going to be are the the people that fund these campaigns. Are they going to stick with them? And any the other part of it is from a bigger picture from these corporations is are they going to continue to funnel the funnel the dark money? Are they going to continue to to back the the PACs and the super PACs that do their do their work in the shadows, or uh, so they can just kind of claim that they're clean I'll catch for now. You after.
0: All right, we're going to hit our first break here, but stay with us. We'll be right back with more Political Rewind.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
0: We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut today. Bill will be back tomorrow. Our panel today is Dr. Kurt Young, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University, Chuck Williams, a reporter for WRBL News 3 in Columbus, and Adam Van Brimmer, editorial page editor for the Savannah Morning News. Um, And I want to jump right back in. Kurt, you had something you wanted to say about uh, corporate donations to these, these candidates.
3: Oh, yes, I, I want to be real brief, though, but uh, it, I think it goes beyond the donations, right? When we look at, when we look at social media uh, outlets, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, um, um, these are actually corporations, and they are operating in a certain kind of way. This may not be articulated in terms of their contributions to either party, particularly in this case the, the Republican Party, Republican candidates, but the ability to mobilize themselves in a way – in the context of social responsibility uh um, um whatever the case may be uh, uh reflects the same dynamic that we're seeing happen among corporations who are actually trying to or at least at some point uh would otherwise lend a significant amount of money to to, to to candidates these 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 corporations and then you can add amazon to it as well right uh apple these companies are making some decisions in terms of, of the direction uh, that they see the country going. And now, of course, we we still need to be a bit patient and see what that leads to in terms of uh, how they would behave in the future. Um, but certainly we, what we saw happen to Facebook uh, in the uh, aftermath of the 2016 uh, uh, election, uh, I don't think these corporations want to repeat of that kind of, of, of negative spotlight in the midst of this kind of uh, seditious activity taking place in the country right now.
0: Yeah, and you've seen a, a big clampdown over the last week. You saw on Friday Twitter you know disbanding President Trump's Twitter account. You've seen the App Store and Android taking Parler, a social media app popular with with Trump uh, Republicans taking it out of the app store. So uh, you know they're, they're moving quick at the same time. I think it's generating a lot of ill will with, uh, with Trump supporters and, and that could have big impacts in 2022 for some of these elections. Um, I'd like to, to pivot a little bit to talk about somebody I guess we don't normally talk about on this show, but Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, and Chuck, I understand you were talking to him um, for a story in the last couple of days and set up for us the, the kind of viral Facebook or sorry, social media post that he made the other day comparing what happened in the Capitol on Wednesday to um, Kristallnacht in, uh, in Austria.
1: A lot of people don't realize But Schwarzenegger was connected to the Georgia elections in a very real way. He, through his institute at the University of Southern California, donated tens of thousands of dollars to Georgia elections offices for them to facilitate the vote. Muscogee County is one of the ones that took him up on it, as did Randolph County, as did Clayton County. And these counties took his money. In Columbus, it meant you did not have to wait in line to early vote because they opened five early voting sites rather than one. It really Mm -hmm. did make voting easier. So he's connected. So I've had two interviews with him, one just prior to the general, and then one last Wednesday, ironically interviewing him as the insurgency was taking over the Capitol. And he paused, and it was like, I can't believe what I'm watching. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger. But then it kind of, it, it, it went in, and then I think he w- some of what he said in that viral video, he's a he's a son of Austria. He has seen, he was born post, two years after World War II. And he really personally lays it out to what, in a way that's understandable. I mean, it got shared, there's been over 61 million views of that video. He tweeted yesterday that he talked to President-Elect Biden. I think there's a clip of it, I don't know if you are going to play it or not, but there's a really interesting clip, and just listen to this, and it had high production value. He was sitting there, he even used the Conan sword.
0: (laughs) All right, Sam, you want to play the the clip?
4: I grew up in Austria, I'm very aware of Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. It was a night of rampage against the Jews carried out in 1938 by the Nazi equivalent of the Proud Boys. Wednesday was the day of broken glass right here in the United States. The broken glass was in the windows of the United States Capitol, but the mob did not just shatter the windows of the Capitol, they shattered the ideals we took for granted. They did not just break down the doors of the building that housed the American democracy. They trampled the very principles on which our country was founded. But it did not work. Our democracy held firm. Within hours, the Senate and the House of Representatives were doing the people's business and certifying the election of President-elect Biden. What a great display of democracy.
0: All right. And that's from former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the fallout from Wednesday's riot has been swift. Of course, on Capitol Hill, we've seen police officers being suspended. About a dozen are under investigation. Uh, News recently that up to 15,000 members of the National Guard could be deployed to Washington for the inauguration next week. Um, but also, this has ripple effects in Georgia. The FBI, FBI is concerned about possible attacks on state capitals, including in Georgia. And legislators yesterday, during the opening day of session, were, were greeted with a ring of, uh, of state police officers in full camouflage gear, carrying tactical rifles, uh, all in the name of, of protecting legislators from, from the worst. And we saw State Senator Jen Jordan, a, a, frequent guest on this show quoted in the New York Times saying that that the typical celebratory atmosphere that you see on the first day of session was gone this year. And there's a new fence going up around the Capitol, and it's just kind of a reminder of where we are. Um, but Kurt, we were talking a little bit before the show, and I I do want to talk about the racial dynamics in all of this, because there's been severe criticism that, that the officers wouldn't have been as permissive to, to these rioters uh, this time around if they were black. Like how we saw during the, the BLM protests over the summer where you saw these officers come out in full riot gear. And here in Georgia, the, the fence that's going up around the, the state capitol was approved following last summer's Black Lives Matter social justice demonstrations. And Kurt, let's, let's talk about this a little bit.
3: Yeah, I, I, I guess I guess by extension, if we had not had those those uh, protests uh, in uh, Atlanta uh, uh, over the summer, Black Lives Matter protests and other other formations, then perhaps we would not have this fence plan uh, so far in advance, and the, perhaps the state of Georgia would be scrambling to put something up uh, like that now in the aftermath of what happened last Wednesday. Uh, it's an interesting uh, point. Now, when I looked at when I tuned in, I was doing an interview last week, and the, the person that was interviewing me uh, asked me if I was paying attention to what was happening in uh, the nation's capital. And I, 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 I hadn't. I'd been uh, occupied doing other things. And when I tuned in, the first thought came to my mind was how th- the first observation was the, uh, 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 the lack of police presence. And the second observation that I had was, wow, they would not have treated black protesters this way. And black protests would be treated totally opposite. And I, I tell that story to make the point that it didn't take long for me to come to this observation and others who, who, who share this kind of uh, perspective to, to look at what was happening right before our very eyes. And I, I, again, I'm making this observation within about five five to uh, three to five minutes. Uh, and then as it continued to play out, the contradictions became even more glaring. Uh, when the issue, when the, when the uh, crisis began to wane, you're not seeing any mass arrests, right? You're not seeing any, any, any kind of direct confrontation with the protesters. And so from the beginning, there's this observation that something is, is, is inconsistent here. Uh, and then of course, as the narrative plays on, as investigations begin to tell us more, we're beginning to see uh, some of the reasons why these kinds of contradictions exist. And this is perhaps something I, I should wait to articulate, but I, I, I think we can say, I'll frame it this way, there has been a long concern for many, many years that within the ranks of law enforcement, you have some of the same uh, uh, white supremacist elements that uh, uh, exist within the population, uh, not only law enforcement, also in but also in the military. Right? And so uh, th- th- there are some important issues around race that the country is actually, uh, to find the silver lining here, uh, is, ha- has an opportunity to sit down and, and talk to or speak to uh, particularly to the ears of a new generation who did not uh, um, perhaps were, were, were not even born uh, uh, to hear the kind of race discourse that we saw occurring in the 1950s 60s and coming to a head in the 1970s right there um, uh, the, the opportunities there but we have to be honest we have to be honest even when it hurts we have to be honest and we need to be very clear on what we're talking about I want to make this last point let's uh, uh, and with all due respect to my friend Adam, um, uh, 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 we, uh, I'm going to ask us not to use the word riot. Riot seems to suggest a kind of spontaneous outburst of political frustration and, and, and social unrest in a way that sometimes seems aimless. And what we have here was a very coordinated, planned attack on the U.S. Capitol. We have individuals in the Capitol. With, with zip ties and a and, 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 and very clear plan of who they want to go find and, uh, uh, and the rest. We had the precedent being set, I guess, a few months ago, right, in Michigan, where there's a plan to, uh, uh, to kidnap the Michigan uh, um, governor. Um, and so once we have that very serious conversation about what we're dealing with, then we can have a discussion as we're hearing about moving forward. But I think that there has to be some accountability uh, to what we're seeing occurring here. Well, because this is serious. This is a very serious moment.
0: Adam, how do you think this issue is going to be discussed in the Capitol, especially Um, And and let's talk about, I guess, security on the one hand, and then also a lot of the the racial justice conversations that that were happening last summer, Uh, because there was gonna be a continuation of that this session. You saw uh, some Republican legislators talk about repealing the citizens arrest law that's been on the books in Georgia for 150 years. Um, Do you think uh, the attention is gonna be taken away from that and that we might be focused entirely on security measures?
2: Well, after looking at some of the videos we've seen in the last week, I think we definitely need to focus on security measures as part of this, right? I mean, when you, when you look, this was, this was a coordinated attack. And I, I do agree with, with Kurt. The, the use of the word riot was probably inappropriate. This was, this was an attack. This was, quite frankly, sedition. But that said, it was promoted on social media and in message boards for, for weeks. And, and then for the, the Capitol Police and the D.C. Police, and what have you to not be prepared? It's just—it's to me—it's inexcusable. And I, I think a lot of questions need to be asked about that. And then we see the video of people basically security holding the door of the Capitol open so that the so that the the uh, seditionists uh, can walk out, and, and they walk out in, in in a celebratory manner. And you know, I understand that they were outnumbered in the building. I understand that you don't really know what kind of weapons they might have on them. So the first priority is, is probably to get them out of the building for the safety of everybody. But when they come out of the building, and I think Kurt, Kurt makes a good point, if this had been a bunch of Black Lives Matter protesters coming out of that building, they would have got them out of the building, and they would have taken them to the ground and put handcuffs on them and, and arrested them. Anybody that doesn't believe that, I'm sorry, you're, you're detached from reality. But in terms of of where we go, in terms of overshadowing some of these other laws, I don't think so. Uh, our own representative here in Savannah, Carl Gilliard, is making a bipartisan push on the citizens' arrest uh, law, as well as stand your ground. And I think you're going to see the the legislature tackle some of these. Now, when it comes to police reform, I think you might see the Republicans go the other way, as they as they attempted to do last year with the with the hate crimes legislation, where at the eleventh hour, they said, "Well, we're going to give protections from the hate crimes laws to law enforcement." So I don't know that they're going to be able to to make a whole lot of progress there. But on these on these other laws that are outdated and, and clearly were were put in at a time to to really oppress people, I think you're going to see those you're going to see those go.
1: Chuck, as all of us on this panel know, and and most of the people listening, words matter. Words matter in a very real way, and I had settled on calling it an insurrection, and it's simply because of the Webster Dictionary definition of violent uprising against an authority or government. I mean, anybody that saw that Wednesday, that's – I mean, if it's a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck this isn't this was an insurrection I think you have to call it what it is and I know our newsroom and other newsrooms across this nation have struggled with what to call it I mean in my book you call it what it was an insurrection
0: all right we have to get to our final break stick around and we'll be right back with more political rewind We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, filling in for Bill Nygut. He just got his COVID vaccine. I am happy to report, and he'll be back at it tomorrow. Our panel today is Chuck Williams, a reporter for WRBL News 3 in Columbus. Dr. Kurt Young, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University, and Adam Van Brimmer, editorial page editor for the Savannah Morning News. So I'd love to spend our last few minutes on the show talking about uh, perhaps the top item of the agenda, uh, this session, uh, now that we're in for the next 39 days in Atlanta, uh, changes to the voting system, now that that runoffs are behind us. Uh, We had Governor Brian Kemp in an interview with my colleague Greg Bluestein last night, strongly endorse adding photo ID requirements for absentee ballots. Um, And I would love to start with you, Adam. And what are you expecting from the legislature on this? Uh, We have Republicans obviously upset about Trump's loss in November and then Purdue and Leffler's losses last week in the face of epic Democratic turnout. And so are you expecting many changes?
2: I'm expecting a big push for changes now. How much traction it gets, I guess, is the real question. I think we've heard uh, Speaker Ralston has come out and said that he is not in favor of, of widespread changes to absentee balloting. Of course, here in Savannah, the lead of our delegation has been in the legislature for almost 30 years. That's Ron Stevens, and he he is in favor of very limited uh, changes in terms of absentee ballots. And when and, and what he cites is the whole idea that when you request an absentee ballot through the site, you have to include your state ID number, your driver's license number, or whatever, so they can verify it and his idea is is just to add that add that line onto the absentee ballot so that when you go and you sign the absentee ballot you go ahead and put that number in that way they can cross check it and look at your picture and that would serve as a as a photo id but i really think that that the republicans are they're scared right now so i think they're going to try to push and do as much as they can and that is just so unfortunate because it will be walking back some of the some of the progress that we've made in race in recent years. I mean, there's a lot of people that will argue that will say a lot of the voting changes we've seen the last three or four years were had didn't go far enough. But the fact of the matter is, is they were positive changes and it's one of these situations that you're going to have to get there slowly, but surely. And, and the whole idea that we could have absentee voting, uh, make it really, really hard to absentee vote, to remove all the absentee vote boxes to just some of the other things that are being brought up, it's really scary, and I just I don't know that they're going to be able to get enough votes to make the changes, but it's, it's going to be hotly debated, and quite frankly, I think it's going to dominate this session even more so than, than trying to figure out how to do a budget in a pandemic.
0: Kurt, We have Democrats and voting rights experts saying there's no need to tighten the rules, and they say there's no evidence of, of widespread voting fraud, and, and they tout, you know, an audit completed a few weeks ago by the Secretary of State's office that found no cases of fraud in, in Cobb County among absentee ballot envelopes. Uh, weigh in here. Do you think uh, there's any uh, of these proposed changes are, are good ideas for Georgia?
3: Uh, I, I appreciate the way uh, Adam painted that picture and, and he kind of exposes some of the challenges. Um, I, I would only add to it this thought. You, you know, there's no saying in politics that all politics is local, right? Um, but I think what we might see happening here is a sort of reverse of that, just in, just in the short term, a temporary reverse of that, in the sense that national politics or the national dynamics right now may saturate uh, uh, Georgia politics in a certain kind of way. For example, um, you, you're correct. The question is correct. And, and, and to a great extent, a lot of what we're discussing in the state uh, around uh, voter reform is a product of the most recent elections. And, and more specifically, the attempt by the administration to, uh, uh, to kind of uh, jump the fight, if you will, in terms of what happened in the state of Georgia in the absence of any real, real evidence. So if we play that out a little further, perhaps what may happen if there is, number one, this uh, continued uh, vilification of Donald Trump and his attempts to uh, alter uh, uh, what has been proven so far without any other evidence otherwise uh, to be a bona fide legitimate election, um, that may cast a shadow on the discourse that's taking place in in the state legislature. I think it goes back to what we started with at the beginning. I think Chuck uh, set the table at the beginning, which speaks to the instinct to which whether or not there's this awakening that's going to occur within the Republican Party, that will then manifest itself in the way that we do business at the state level uh, around issues such as voter reform and what have you. I just don't think that there's a way we can separate uh, the current discussion that we're having or that we, are, that we pretend to have around voting uh, in the state legislature from what we uh, uh, see taking place, the conversation that we see taking place in the, in the, in the broader uh, nation as a whole. But at the end of the day, with all this talk of Georgia turning blue, I don't think we're there yet. I think, um, as the conversation implies, um, Republican governor, um, Republican Senate, Republican House, uh, the the state is at at best purple right now. And uh, that is going to play itself out as well in terms of how we have these discussions.
0: Chuck, how much leverage do Democrats really have? As as uh, Kurt just mentioned, they're they're in the minority. There there are some Republican divisions on this issue, but Democrats probably don't have many uh many plays to make here.
1: Well, you know, Georgia may be blue outside that gold dome. You get under it, Georgia's still very, very, very red. And you know, Kurt spent the last hour kind of setting me up. I feel like I owe him lunch. Um but he says all politics is local. I would take that down and say all oh, voting is local. And we saw that in a very real way play out on November 3rd and again last Tuesday. And I would invite people from across the state. They want to see how a metro area does voting and does it well come to Muskogee County. Our director of elections Nancy Morin, has done an incredible job of running a- of running the election here. And it's, and there've been very few problems. And I would invite people to come down and and look at that because I think that the state can learn some things from Muscogee County.
0: All right, and we're gonna give Chuck the last word. That is all the time we have for on Political Rewind today. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Kurt Young, Adam Van Brimmer, and Chuck Williams. Bill Nygut, newly vaccinated from COVID-19, will be back at his microphone tomorrow. And please note that GPB may carry live NPR coverage of the House impeachment proceedings, and so we don't know the details yet of that. when that will start. Stay tuned to the Political Rewind Twitter page. That's at politicsgpb for updates on how to listen to the show if we're not on the air amid news coming from DC. And you can always listen to the show on the GPB News webpage or watch it on the GPB News Facebook page. And if you missed any part of today's Political Rewind, or if you want to listen to our past shows, download Political Rewind wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to producers Sam Bermis dawes senior producer Amelia Brock, and engineer Jesse Neiswager for their work on the show. I'm Tamar Hallerman. Thanks for joining us today, and have a safe rest of the day.